record. What's going on, everybody? We are back for the Real Bodybuilding Podcast, episode number 19. And I have a great guest on today. A lot of you guys have been asking me to get some of the X's and O's of bodybuilding involved in the conversation because we talk a lot about life, um, but we don't necessarily talk about all the nutrition stuff you guys want to hear about and all that. So I have uh, Chris Tuttle with me. Chris, how are you? Hey, man. How's it going? I thought Chris would be a great addition to the show because he is a registered dietitian. Um, He has a lot of clients. They all seem to be doing great. And I thought Chris could shed some light on um, some of the nutrition stuff that you guys have been asking about. So we're just going to have an open conversation and see where it goes. And hopefully you guys get a lot of information from it. So Chris, you had uh, the North Americans this past weekend. Yes, sir. And how did your clients do? Everyone pretty well, man. Uh, I had five people compete. Uh, everybody made first call out except one. Uh, we had one pro card. Um, everything went really well. I, I was happy with everything. You know, like there's not, I, I wouldn't sit back and, you know, sometimes you go back and you're like, oh, I would have changed this. There's not much I would have changed maybe besides a few tweaks in posing or a change of color. Somebody had different color than everybody else. Some So, you know, if everybody's wearing protein and somebody's wearing something super dark, yeah. Some, you kind of start to look a little different, you know? As a coach, are you handling all those minor details or are you just handling nutrition? I do as much as I can that I can see. But okay. sometimes I'm not aware that all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait, you're using that tan? Or, yeah. or you know, it is, man, you help somebody pose over and over again and then they get on stage and it's the same old thing they were doing. <laughs> yeah, they fall back into old habits. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you had one pro card out of the group. Yep. Who was that? That was Anthony Della Ventura. I think I'm saying his last name. He he won the the Masters 40 and overall, and he won the light heavyweight um, 35 Masters and got fourth in the overall. So technically, I guess he, he earned his pro card eligibility twice. That's pretty and, awesome. Um, yeah, no, I saw some of the pictures on your on your Instagram page. Your clients look great, but I wanted to ask you about that because. How does the bodybuilding work? Is it every class winner gets a pro card? For open bodybuilding? Yeah. For North Americans, I'm not sure. I know it used to be just the top three in the overall did. Okay. For masters, I guess they changed it, where it used to be just the overall 35 would get it, just the overall 40 would get it. This year, you had to be the top three in the overall masters to get your pro card. I do know that. Per age group. I saw some shows where they were giving out like second and third place pro cards. I don't think it was an open bodybuilding, but have you seen that or am I mistaken that's about crazy. that? Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, I look at that, to be honest, like, you know, I know everybody wants to win their pro card and, and like, I don't care what anybody thinks, but like, that's like skipping the last four weeks of Navy SEAL boot camp and be like, oh, I'll go right to war. <laughs> I think, I think I might rather make sure I'm well prepared because if you're placing third, becoming a pro, no offense, you're most likely going to be a shitty pro because you're not supposed to be there. Yeah. I mean, I, I never like to, I never like to judge beforehand because people can change their physiques pretty rapidly. Of course. But I, but I do, the thing I do agree with you on is if you can't win your class, you don't deserve to be a, you don't deserve to get your pro card. Right. Right. Exactly. So and I don't know why sometimes people would want it because you know, like they might, I've been in a situation before where you know, somebody gets second, gets their pro card, and they go right into a pro show a year later, and they get smashed. 
yeah. and they're upset. I'm like, listen, you have to understand, you know, like, you know, the lineup you were in that you turned pro in may not necessarily been a hard lineup, not knocking you or what happened, but now you're competing against people who are the best of the best. Yeah. So if you went and you did say nationals and you won the overall against a stacked class, got your pro card, you're more than likely to have a much higher percent of waiting a year or two and doing well as a pro. You see what, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Have you, have you had to have those conversations with your clients? Yeah. Is it a hard conversation to have or is it like just a reality check? It used to be, but now I really don't give a shit because <laughs> it's like sugarcoating things just does not work. Yeah. Like, you know, you tell people flat out, you know, like some, you know, how some clients perceive themselves better than they are. And I'd be like, Oh, I could definitely stack up against those guys. I can beat those guys. I'm like, well, let's slow your roll there. You know, yeah. Bobby, let's put things in perspective and do it. And then, and then they get these expectations in their head. They're going to win. And then they go again next year to that show. They thought they were going to win. And that's a harder lineup. And then they get smashed. And then they're like, their life's over with. You know what I mean? Do you, do you tamper down expectations? Cause I do that with my clients. Like I'm, I'm always, I always err on the side of caution because that's what I do with myself. So when I'm talking to my clients, I'm like, look, this is a big show, blah, blah, blah. We're just going to do our best. Like I don't ever, I know some coaches are like, oh, you're going to win for sure. No, that's that's the dumbest thing you say to somebody. I'm totally on your aspect is I came from a whole background of racing motocross my entire life. So like in racing motocross, it's an individual sport. So every time you're on the gate in your lineup, your whole focus is on me. Like, okay, I have to take this corner correctly. I have to do this correctly. I have to do this correctly in order to beat those guys. It's not like I'm going to get them like, no, I'm just going to win. Like you have to make sure you're doing everything that you need to do and focus on you to be the best version. After that, the cards fly where they fly. Yeah. Like uh, some, the other thing too, is like, you know, as in bodybuilding, there's a lot of insecurity Mm -hmm. and a lot of inflatable egos. And I think a lot of people will, try to puff up their ego to hide their insecurity and convince themselves they're going to win. And then as soon as it doesn't go, it's like, yeah, they're like devastated. It's like, I don't know why what people want to set themselves up for that type of expectation. Because as you know, like you prep people, people who have those expectations, their prep usually doesn't go super smooth. Yeah. Yeah. Have you, have you, um, have you lost clients because of your honesty? Because I know some, the reason I'm asking that is because I know some clients like to be pampered. They like to be coddled. They like to be always like the positive reinforcement. And I personally like the blunt truth. Like when my coaches say to me, look, you're behind, you're, you're off season, you're too fat. You're like, I like that blunt honesty. So are you that way with your clients or are you more positive reinforcement? Um, probably more on the blunt side, but also on the side of, progression it's like listen man i know you might not like where you are now but you better than you were three days ago and that's all that matters mm-hmm. we're going in the direction um sometimes people can't handle like say if you're five weeks out like dude you're behind you're gonna you're not gonna make it you know like, then they fall apart <laughs> more or less stay positive you know not being like dude you're awesome or anything like that but yeah in the same way with you like man i like honesty and like what yeah. you know you know i'm friends with evan and yeah oh, Evan since 2007 and uh and since 2007 till now I think Evan's only given me like four compliments <laughs> <laughs> over the shows and I remember getting ready for nationals and like he'll never say anything he doesn't mean he's the most like well-rounded integral person I've ever met 
And at nationals, he looks at me and goes, holy shit, Tuttle, I've never seen you so dry and hard before. And yeah. I'm like, oh, that means something. Because yeah. everybody else is like, dude, you're going to kill it. You're going to smash it. And yeah. then somebody who always keeps his mouth down and says something that's way more meaningful. Of course. Yeah. Of course. So what was your, so when did you turn pro? Uh, 2013 uh, in the light heavyweight class. Can I ask you a question? What, how tall are you? Five, nine. Why, and this may be a stupid question, but I have to ask it. Why are you in the 212 class and not, why, like, did you want to be bigger or are you just, this is good for you? This is what you want no, to do? No, I mean, I really wanted to be bigger, but like, you know, growing up training, like, I, I don't want to make this an excuse, but I didn't really have a lot of good role models. There wasn't a lot of coaches when I first started. So like, I did a lot of damage to my body, my lower back, knees, hips, um, and I got as high as 262 before and like, I couldn't even walk around, man. My knees hurt, my hips hurt, lower back hurt. Sleep apnea was so bad. Even my sleep apnea machine. And I'm like, maybe being that big is just not feasible for my structure and the damage I've done to my body, you know, yeah. lifting through pain and causing all the issues I've done, just being a total knucklehead in the gym. Um, I you, I'm sorry. I want to interrupt you. This is actually a really important point. Do you think, do you think that's your fault or do you think it's genetic? And the reason I ask that is people are always asking me like why I have so many injuries. And I always wonder sometimes if it's genetic, if it's something I did wrong in the early days, if it's because I started late, like, I don't know. So how do do you attribute your pains that you're having strictly to the way you lifted? Obviously there's always a genetic component. There's like no question there's a genetic component. Um, obviously racing motocross my entire life from age seven to 21 pays a toll, all the broken bones. And then, um, but like I ignored a lot of pain and I obviously lifted like a lot of these bodybuilders do amateur guys. You see post videos on Instagram, like just a total jackass doing like four reps. Like what's the point? Yeah. I remember ignoring a lot of pain, like, you know, doing heavyweight on hack squats or squats and like my knees getting swollen. And the only thing I was concerned about was, man, I hope my knee swelling goes down by next week so I can train yeah. again, you know? And then over the years and years, it started to get a little worse and worse. And then I sustained a pretty bad injury getting ready for New York Pro. I had chondromalacia in my knee so bad, I couldn't even squat 135 the entire prep. Yeah. Um, that's really the straw that broke the camel's back going into it. Now I have arthritis in my knees. And knees hurt every day. But it's a combination of both for sure. Um. How many pro shows have you done? Only two. And how old are you? Uh, 36. Are you going to do more? You're, you're getting ready for something right now, aren't you? Yeah, I decided to jump into California pro in 10 weeks. Um, my knee's been pretty good, and I kind of found a system of training that I can stimulate my quad without re-injuring or aggravating it every couple of weeks. So as long as that knee holds up and I can keep going what I'm doing, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. So there's a lot of people that message me with knee issues or elbow issues or shoulder issues. How have you managed to, including myself, uh, I have Osgood Schlatter. I don't know if you know what that is, but. Yeah, I had it too when I was racing motocross. Yeah, it's mine's flared back up in the last like three months. Uh, for those of you who don't know, it's uh, a calcium buildup at the top of the tibial bone and it uh, inflames the patella tendon pretty badly. So you can't, it makes it really hard to squat and things like that. So. How have you been able to manage working around your knee injury or knee issue? So like, I'll just say this for everybody who's listening, like everybody's knee issues or causes are different. So this doesn't apply to everyone's knee issues. So my issue is 
I have an imbalance in my hips. My right leg's always been stronger. And when you train to muscular failure, there's always some type of compensation, right? Mm-hmm. So over the years of compensating the left leg being weaker, my femur probably started to move forward a few more millimeters than my right was because it's weaker, grinding the femur into the patella. So you get scraping of the cartilage under the knee over years. Eventually, chondromalacia starts and the, the, the cartilage on the patella deteriorates. So that is what happened to my knee. So now I got to do more single leg things working that left leg completely independently from the right leg. So there isn't any compensation and I can completely pivot properly with good mechanics. The only downfall is just as you know, in powerlifting, like powerlifting is a hip, like primarily a hip, uh, all the power comes from the hips. Yeah. So now that I have to pivot and protect the knee, it's like my glutes and my hamstrings are growing faster on my left side and quad activation is harder to get because I can't really drive upright or stay like a high bar squat, you know? So when you say, when you say you have to pivot, are you talking about like if you're sitting in the leg press machine, you're not sitting exactly square. You're kind of like, you might be pivoted. A oh, bit no, I, I, mean, I mean more I have to pivot on my knee. So like, I really have to make sure my knee doesn't travel forward to my toe. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So, and I have to load my hip properly and like with perfect mechanics. Like if you had to see like my lunge, my left leg, like it would be like the perfect most textbook uh, mechanics, you know, yeah. well, my, like I have a little more leeway, I can lean forward to get more quad activation. Okay. So your body's compensating with the glute and the hamstring. Yeah, to make up for lack of quad firing. But I saw, I think I saw a photo you posted a couple of days ago on your Instagram and your legs look balanced. <laughs> I'm good at hiding it, my friend. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so what, what does the bodybuilding career look like? Is this just for fun at this point or you still have aspirations? I love bodybuilding. Um, people, you know, a lot of my friends and people knock on me all the time. Why do you diet like that and eat like that? If you're not, I love it to the core and whether I'm sponsored by animal or competing, I will never, ever by any means stop living, living the lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I started living this lifestyle, um, 2004 and I've never stopped. Even when I stopped for a year to go to school, to finish my internship, to be a dietitian, I still ate the same way. I still trained when I could. This wasn't a priority at that time, but I love it to death. I'll never stop training. I'll never stop living the lifestyle. Um, I love it to death and I would love to keep competing, but I mean, sometimes you got to like take into consideration, like, Jesus, do I want to be able to catch a football with my kid? If like when I'm 40, yeah, or yeah. run my body into the ground till nothing. Like I'm not going to be that guy on stage in his fifties told me like, I still got it, you know, <laughs> you know, but I'll still train and live the lifestyle and be healthy. You know? So how did you go from motocross to bodybuilding? What was the switch? This is a funny story. So I love dirt bikes since I was like two and I never gave up on it. My mom's like, dude, they don't make dirt bikes for little kids. Mm. And then day I found, I saw some kid with a bike in a park and I go, mom, look, and she's like, oh, crap. So now he's so <laughs> he got me a bike. I got faster. I wanted to race. Yada, yada, yada. But I wanted to be really good. And uh, my parents hired a trainer, a motocross trainer. And this guy is like, he's like cross between an Oscar Arden and like a boot camp Joel Sargent. <laughs> he got me good so fast. I went from novice to expert in under one year when I was 12 years old in the, in the ADCC division. And um, he made me train. And it was more like CrossFit style, like cleans, overhead presses, 
uh, you know, 10 to 15 reps, fast or pace. And my body changed really fast at age 12. Yeah. We're going to uh, a pool party once and someone's like, dude, you have like abs and like big arms. And I'm like, I didn't even know that was like a cool thing, you know? Yeah. 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 Realize it. So then I wanted to train with weights more. And my trainer's like, listen, dummy, you can't be a bodybuilder and race motocross. Like, water you gotta run bike swim and your only reason why you're weight training is to protect your back to prevent injury yeah um so i always wanted to bodybuild so bad but i couldn't um and then right when i uh i turned pro racing motocross when i was 21 and i did one two pro races and i never qualified for nationals i wasn't that good um and then i quit and i quit sold everything and like i get to bodybuild now i've been waiting to bodybuild <laughs> you're waiting for it yeah so I went right into bodybuilding full core, uh, 2000, half like 2004. Do you think this is going to, this might sound so stupid to a lot of people, but I, I feel like reinforcements we get when we're younger are what drive us when we're older. Do you think that pool party, since it still sticks out in your mind now, do you think that was possibly a driving force? Like that instant gratification oh, yeah. you got? And I loved superheroes. I loved X-Men. I loved Superman. And I always thought like, you know, I'm kind of old school. Like I always felt like men are supposed to be muscular. They're supposed to be strong. Um, they're supposed to be like, you know, the head of the household, not in the sense of like domineering, but you know what I mean? Like they're supposed to take care of like, be tough, be strong, you know? So I always wanted to be strong. I always wanted to be fit. And I was always into exercise and fitness and climbing ropes and, Mm -hmm. and arm wrestling in school. So I was always into that at a very young age. So you're like a guy's guy. So how does, how does today's day and age, how are you working with that? Man, I, you know, I don't know. It's, it's so strange. It's very bizarre. How are you working with like, um, you know, there's not two genders, there's more than two genders and there's, there's tons, not that I believe that, but that's seems to be the narrative nowadays. And how are you working with the way society is moving? I mean, trying let's, to- yeah, the thing is this, I don't care what you do with your body. I don't care how many genders, whatever. I just, I can't stand the fact that like, it's becoming a, uh, if you make a mistake, misgendering somebody, like you could be in trouble or it's a bad thing. You know, like the other day I had a conversation with somebody and, and I was afraid to say his or her because it looked like a guy, but they were trying to be a girl. So I don't know if they were just trying to be, they, they, they want to identify as a woman or a male, but I didn't know what to say. So I just left it blank. And I would say his or her. Yeah. Because I don't know. And like, I rather, you know what I mean? Like, I agree, it, yeah. you know, do you think in that situation you should just ask? I, I dude, I don't even, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I could make it weirder. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, but you're, how does your wife feel about that? Is she like an old school person like you kind of like she enjoys the fact that you want to be the man of the house and all that? Yeah, well, she's Greek. So, you know, in Greek, you know, Greek culture, it's more, you know, men are the head of the household, you know, like women have the roles that I don't have the roles. I couldn't possibly do the things that she does. There's some things that she couldn't possibly do that I do and mm-hmm. work together as a team. Yeah. That's kind of, you know. How long have you been with your wife? How long have you been together last? Five and a half years? Yeah, five, five and a half years. What did you guys, how, how long were you together before you were married? How long were we together before we were married? <laughs> Maybe you should just bring her into the interview. 
Two years. Two years. So what you just knew, you just knew it was time. That was it. I really did know. I really did know with her. I was previously married before and um, it was definitely uh, not the right call. And I said to myself, I'll never get married ever again. There's no way in hell. And, uh, and she came along and I said to her when we first met, I go, I'm flat out telling you right now, I'm never getting married. So don't even try. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I laid down the law, like all these things. And like, and she didn't get scared or run away. And I'm like, wow, this is weird. I'm like, like maybe on our first date, I should take her to McDonald's because like maybe, and, and like we go to like some like random breakfast place. It was cheap. And we didn't go on like a really, really nice date for a while. And then she still stuck around. She's so much fun. I'm like, wow, this girl's legit. And, and then, then I started pulling out more tricks and stuff like that. I'm like, I so you, so you did the opposite of what every other guy does. You're like, I'm going to try and be on my worst behavior and see if she sticks around other than trying to be on your best behavior. Yeah, you being somebody you're not, and they take her a five star. It's like, where do you go from there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but it worked. You found she found yeah. out she found out who you were, and that was how it went along. Yeah, yeah. What are you? Um, are you guys going to have kids? Um, as of now, that's not in the cards. Maybe down the future, but as of now, that's not our focus. It looks like you have a beautiful home. I watched one of your uh, day in the life videos and all that. And you guys look like you have a lot of fun together. You also look like you work pretty hard. What is coaching your main source of income or do you have another job? No, that's both of our main sources of income. It all started, you know, being a coach and doing this at home was like it happened by accident. Um, So real quick, a quick synopsis, like go back to 2005 into my first show, got smoked. Picked up all those books, read them, and then prepped myself, and then I won my second show. Some kid at the gym goes, dude, you, you made major ground in a year. Do you think you can help me? And mm-hmm. I said to him, not like today's day and age where everybody's a coach. And I'm like, listen, man, I have no idea what I'm doing, mm-hmm. but I'll help you for 50 bucks. And then <laughs> Tim, and he did well. And then his friend goes, hey, man, you made some major ground from last time. What'd you do? He goes, well, I had this kid at the gym help me. He goes, do you think he can help me? And that started in 2005. And over 2005, that snowballed into the next person, the next person, the next person. I never intended it. It was just like side money for when I was in college, you know? And then I uh, went to school, nutrition, became a dietitian, came back. And then everybody was waiting for me to come back to help them with their preps and diet because I wasn't doing anything during my internship. Yeah. And then and then it started to get bigger and bigger and bigger. I worked at the hospital as a clinical dietitian for years. And then I had to go part-time. And then I quit and went full-time. And then my wife eventually quit and she became full-time. And now we both do this more than full-time. Okay, so you skipped over a lot of stuff there. So when, you did your, when did you start going to school for, to be a registered dietitian? When did you start that? Um, well, right after high school, I was still racing motocross and that was my priority. I said, if I'm going to race and be a, you know, weird, I'll live in my parents' basement racing, being young is the time to do it. So, uh, I didn't go to college until two years, th- three years after high school. And then in 2004, I started going to school to be a dietitian, did my four years bachelor's. So in- you went, in fact, so you did that 2005 show while you were at the university. Correct. And you got smoked and then. But you said you picked up Chris Aceto's books. So were you learning more from Chris Aceto's books or were you learning more from your university studies? <laughs> uh, university studies doesn't teach you, honestly, anything about fat loss. Uh, you know, they, they're still in the whole 
thought process, they're so outdated. When I did it, it was like, all right, if you want to lose weight, you need to expend more calories than you take in. And then what you do is over eight weeks, you lose eight pounds. It's, it doesn't, they don't know anything. They didn't yeah. learn any aspect of that at all. Okay. It's so, more like nutrition disease, how sugars work with diabetes, okay. nutrition therapy, tube feeds, uh, reading people's blood work, how much potassium they need in their TPN, that kind of stuff. So what happens after university? Where do you go from there to become like you get your, what degree is it? Like what's it called exactly? It's called nutrition and dietetics or it's your didactic program, they call it. So it's your bachelor's in nutrition and dietetics. And then once you graduate, you get a certificate. Once you have a certificate, you have to apply for an internship, which they accept you. They don't accept you. Where is the internship? At a hospital? It, it's all over the country. Okay. Okay. Affiliated either with a college that goes in the hospital, but it's a series of rotations over a year where you might be five weeks in outpatient nutrition therapy, which is generally kind of like outpatient clinic of like weight loss, diabetes, or whatever. Or it might be at WIC or a renal unit, a dialysis unit. Uh, being clinical, you we go to you know the OB floor, you know for, uh, pregnancy uh, delivery, and we do different rotations over the twelve weeks. Um, similar concept to like a doctor doing rotation in different settings. Okay, so you did that, and then after that, you worked at a hospital. And then after that, you got to take the RD national exam. Um, and then I started to work in my master's in nutrition and work at a hospital. Correct. And how long do you work at the hospital before you decided you want to be a full-time coach? It's got at least four years. Okay. What was, what was working at the hospital as a dietitian? Like, is it, is it anything like helping people lose weight or is it more health wise? <laughs> It's all nutrition and education and nutrition related disease, but it really varies from floor to floor. Like obviously you're in the ICU, you're not talking to any patients. Yeah. You're all intubated. So like it's more or less working with the team and looking at their blood work, making recommendations on their TPN, how many calories they need, how much D5, all that kind of stuff, um, which I thought was super cool because you implement their, their tube feed and you come back the next day and you look at their labs and you see how they changed. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is cool. All right, we got to change this now. And the next day you come back, look at them again. So that was cool because it's not like they had poor adherence. It's like, oh, wait, you ate a donut? Oh, damn. You should have stayed on your plan. It's more like they got no choice because there's a nutrition. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, then uh, then you have the cancer floor. Cancer floor has been you know, educating them, making sure they're getting enough nutrition, making sure they're not losing weight or becoming cachexic, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So let me ask you this. So, Okay, what made you leave and go to full-time coaching? Was it just the amount of people asking you and you saw that there was a, a, a income stream there? 100%. The demand was out of control. I would get out, of, get out of work and then I would work for two hours, go to the gym and then work at 10 o'clock at night. And I'm like, geez, I can't do this. And then I started to realize how much money I was making. I'm like, geez, I was making more money coaching on the side, working 20 hours a week than I was 40 hours a week at the hospital. Yeah. So well, maybe I could probably do this full time, which made me nervous because you're you're working for yourself. Yeah. I did that and it was fine. And then it kept growing and growing to the point where I was like, I came and keep track of everything myself. Like I wasn't billing people. Lexia goes, my wife, when she started home, she goes, you know, you have about $16,000 of people owe you, right? Are you and serious? I'm like, no, I didn't. She goes, you've been helping about 13 people for free. Like all these crazy things. Like I, yeah. <laughs> so 
how many clients were you training when you left the hospital? Like approximately? Oh, I don't know. Maybe 60 or 70. Okay. And what do you, what do you charge monthly? Just out of, for those who are at, who want to know. For what? Everything's different. We have weight loss. We have nutrition disease. We have coaching for off-season bodybuilding. And we have oh, coaching. Wait a minute. You have nutrition disease? Like you'll just take somebody and help them like get healthy? Oh, the majority of my clients are nutrition-related disease and weight loss. Explain that to me. So like is it bodybuilders or is it normal people or both? Normal, normal people. I do both. Oh, okay, okay. So they come to you with what? Like just give me one example. Uh, managing diabetes, keeping their hemoglobin A1C down. Um, I have a lot of people who try to make life insurance tests. They go, hey, I have to get my cholesterol down in four weeks to pass the test. <laughs> Drop down, and I will, I'll, do, I'll change their diet all around and give them a protocol and get their LDL to drop like 80 points to make their life insurance exam. Man, I have so many questions. Okay, so I watched your videos. I watched some of your uh, day in the life videos. I watched a few of your cooking videos. And I noticed that you're very big on micronutrients, which is a good thing. But I feel like in my, I'm included in this group. A lot of bodybuilders don't care about micronutrients. They just want to get the macro count down. How much do you think, like when you're training your clients, how much do you think a bodybuilder's physique can change when they focus on micronutrients more? Oh, I, I don't think you can make that black and white answer. Now, for example, like I like to make a, a, a relative, uh, I guess you could say it this way, all right? So if somebody's eating 150 grams of carbs a day at yeah. level, and say they're a decent sized guy, I would make sure the majority of those carbohydrates are coming from nutrient dense sources. As soon as the carbs keep getting greater and greater and greater, the percent of simple carbs, cream of rice, cakes, white rice keeps going up and up and up because we already have enough micronutrients in the diet. Because mm-hmm. when you start getting low calories and people are just eating chicken, rice, and not eating vegetables, and they're eating oil, like no wonder they feel like crap and they have low energy and they can't lose fat. It's because they're deficient in everything else. Sure, there's enough base micronutrients first before I start adding everything else. Okay, I guess it, what you're saying makes sense, but I guess I'll have to parse it out this way. Because what you described there was almost like an off-season program and then you described a pre-contest program. So I'll parse it out this way. So for myself, for example, I noticed that my off-season training is better when I'm adding things like like one of your favorite, I noticed one of your favorite things is avocados. So when I'm adding things like avocados, when I'm on my vitamin and mineral regimen, when I'm uh, eating more vegetables and more fruits throughout the day, I notice that I'm healthier and I feel better in the gym and lifting feels better. My joints feel better. Like everything just feels better. 100%. 100%. I never took that into account coming up as a bodybuilder. I just like, okay, I need my steak. I need my fucking potato. I'm going to squirt a shitload of barbecue sauce on it. And, and I'm good. Yeah. And uh, so do you think someone's, if someone's focused on the numbers, let's say somebody's focused on, I want my bench to get better. Do you think focusing on those micronutrients can help that? Or is it more a body composition thing? It absolutely will help that. There's no question about it because, you know, so much research in my master's with cancer survivor, mortal, uh, uh, mortality, morbidity rate, shows that people who eat a balanced diet are much more likely to survive terminal illnesses than people who eat a a diet more deficient micronutrients and take vitamins. It doesn't work the same. 
So they theorize that there's some sort of synergistic effect that food has together that makes the body stronger and recover better. Do I have the exact answer? No, I'm not going to shoot up weird theories if it's not proven yet. But I do believe that there's a certain percent, whatever percent that might be, should be of micronutrient-dense foods. And obviously, if you're trying to gain more weight after the fact, you should be adding, obviously, other easier-to-eat things that may necessarily not contain the micronutrients. So everybody's diet should have some degree of a variety of fruits and vegetables. Like the typical bodybuilding diet is horrid. And no wonder so many people have GI issues because what do you think happens to the GI when you're just slamming straight rice and chicken beef all the time, you know? So how do you, how do you square this with people that are having great success with just chicken and rice? Well, I mean, if they have great success with chicken and rice, then they, they can keep doing chicken and rice. But like, as you know, genetics reign supreme on everything. I mean, yeah. I've seen people one damn meal a day of fast food and they're benching four or five or 10 reps, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You can do that. And some people don't seem to be affected as much by others. So usually I, I, I become more practical. Somebody comes to me with a terrible diet and I'm like, and they're working great. Then I'll work, obviously work off their diet and maybe just add a few extra things, not take their diet and dump it upside down and eat the, have eat carrots, spinach and, tomatoes all day long. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And work from a progression. Or if they come to me and they're like, I'm eating hot sauce, rice and chicken, beef. I feel like shit. My GI sucks. And then I'll flip it upside down. Yeah. So when you formulate, if a new client comes to you and you're for, or even old clients and you're formulating their diets, do you have a set amount of micronutrients you're trying to put into their diet? Or is, are you just saying, I want you to have a fruit of your choice. I want you to have it. Or do you have specific things that you want them to have every day? Yeah, it's more like specific things that have every day. And like, as you know, a lot of people's adherence to diets are very poor. So you really got to work with what they're going to do, not necessarily what's the most optimal, unless they say to me, Chris, I'll do everything you tell me to do, no matter what, it doesn't matter. That's a different case. But, you know, I usually say, man, I want at least two or three fruit portions a day, which to me, a portion is 15 grams of carbs. Can you tell me, before we go on, let's, let's parse this out for people that are listening. Why, why do you want them to have two or three portions of fruit a day? Oh, because of the micronutrients in the fruit. Uh, it's easier to eat carbohydrate. It actually helps digestion. Like apples contain sorbitol, can help you go to the bathroom. Um, it's a good source of fiber. They're relatively cheap. They're very easy to eat. It adds more palatability to different foods. If you're going to add in like a few fresh strawberries to your oatmeal, or if you're going to mash in banana into your cream of rice, way to get some more potassium in it's other things to kind of enhance flavors besides just eating plain stuff and versus having somebody take you know a sugar-free jam that's loaded with splenda that doesn't contain any fruit at all and they're adding that for the flavor i'd rather them have something that adds other flavor i mean how do you feel about those people that say fructose is bad for you it's stored in the liver blah 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 they are completely incorrect if you're consuming a large quantity, to, to consume enough fructose from fruit to jam out your liver, you'd be having to eat like two pounds of pineapple a day. percent <laughs> of fructose in fruit. It's like anywhere from 5 to 15%. Now, if you go down the street and you go to the gas station and you buy Sour Patch Kids, a couple things like that, you're ingesting more fructose in that bag of Sour Patch Kids than you are if you ate a pound of pineapple. 
I don't think people think that. I don't think people realize that, eh? No, people have no idea. They, they, th- 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 this is the thing. You know, you asked me before, like in the dietitian school, did you learn a lot and how it applies to bodybuilding? No, but what school and education does teach you is really how to feed through the bullshit. Okay. I could give people a bogus study that says fish oil causes cancer. And 90% of the people I hand it to, they're like, oh my God, I have to stop taking this. It's okay. like, no, read the study a little more carefully. Yeah. The study's totally bogus. Okay. People pick up stuff on one study and they look at it. Just like, as you know, like medicine, like you can't take one study and be like, oh, eggs cause uh, increase in serum cholesterol. It's a little more complicated than that. Yeah. But people, especially bodybuilders, which is weird. It's like they're, they're, they can't wait to get out of their, their, their uh, show backstage. They're eating a bunch of junk and candy, but they're going to sit there and tell me that fruit causes me to have a messed up liver. <laughs> yeah. Um, what? Uh, I just read a, an article by Brad Schoenfeld, who's a PhD. I don't know if you know who that is, but yeah. Oh yeah. And he talked about antioxidants affecting muscle growth. Yeah. I, I noticed a lot of companies put antioxidants in their pre-workout formulas or their intra-workout formulas. How does that, how do those two mix? Like, do you even agree with that or is that something you don't agree no, with? No, it is true. It is true. Just like how they say taking NSAIDs um, will negate muscle gains because it dampers the inflammatory response. Yeah. You need an inflammatory response for them to, to have an adaption. Yeah. Um, so like when Oh, pe- wait, wait, before you go on, I want, I want people to understand what you just said because that's actually a major point because I know a lot of guys will get home after like a leg day with like sore legs or sore whatever and they'll pop an Advil. The worst thing you can do. Can you explain to them? You don't have to explain to them the mechanisms of it, but can you just tell them that why that's bad? All right. So one thing, NSAIDs are one of the worst things you can ever take for an athlete. One, it increases, it damages your stomach lining and your intestinal tract, um, causes stomach ulcers, one, and it dampers the inflammatory response. So obviously if you're under pain, you're reducing swelling, it works great for limiting pain. Research has shown it actually delays healing. It might make you feel better temporarily. For all duration of time, it can actually delay healing, um, especially in tendons and things like that. Ice is a better way to go. And more importantly, making sure your mechanics are correct, making sure your muscles are loose so your body's working properly, and then using other mechanisms to control that type of inflammation, more environmental instead of systemic. Mm-hmm you need an inflammatory response to have a response to adapt. Okay. I just read actually a bunch of information on NSAIDs and athletes on how detrimental it is to Olympic athlete who take Advil prior, during and after how it like destroyed their stomach, you know, hurt their performance, delayed recovery over a longer period of time at the end of the study. Yeah. It makes you fine the next day, but other than that, it's not the way to go. So going back to the antioxidants, if Brad, if Brad Schoenfeld's article was right, or it wasn't a study he cited, it was just an article he wrote, but um, how do you, how does that affect, okay, if you're saying antioxidants affect muscle growth, why are we jamming our oatmeal with blueberries and like, why are we trying to get as many antioxidants as we can? Or is it only antioxidants around training? Around training. Oh, okay. This is where things get complicated, right? So it's like, okay, we want to hinder muscle growth. See, that's where people go from one extreme to the other, right? So you don't want to leave the gym and start taking 2,000 milligrams of vitamin C 
and loading up on vitamin E and all these antioxidants and mega doses, that's what you don't want to do. You know, you're not going to get a thousand milligrams of, of uh, vitamin C in like 50 grams of blueberries. You know what I mean? That's right. It, I see what you're saying. Right. It's just not going to happen. But most of the time your post-workout nutrition should just be carbs, protein anyway. Mm-hmm. And you should still have your fruits and your vegetables, but there's a huge difference between fruits and vegetables and mega dosing and vitamins and minerals. Yeah. Yeah. Different. So I, so can you explain, well, I don't know if you can explain, but where does the thought process come of having antioxidants loaded in our pre intra and post-workout products? I have no idea. Marketing ploy. It just looks more bang for your buck. They're like, wow, this yeah. is caffeine and it's got 5,000 milligrams of vitamin C. That <laughs> need to be vitamin C either. I don't need to buy that. I can get it all in one because I hear that all the time. Yeah. I want to get that because it has everything in one product. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, what, that doesn't know how it works. What's uh, how do you feel about caffeine? Cause I know a lot of kids or I don't want to say kids, but a lot of guys are like, you know, they work full-time jobs and they're tired and they really focus on the stim aspect of their pre-workouts and how do you feel about like some of these stim, some of these pre-workouts are loaded like 400 milligrams of caffeine per serving and that, how do you feel about uh, the caffeine loading or the stimulant loading that these people are doing before their workouts? Do you think it's good or bad? All right. Well, let's break one thing. There's a big difference between drinking a cup of coffee or maybe taking a hundred to 200 milligram caffeine tablet versus taking like five scoops of NO explode and becoming all cracked out before the gym. Now, being overstimulated and stimulating your sympathetic nervous system and overdrive is 110% detrimental to building muscle. It, is, it just is. And, um, uh, you know, it, you just kind of like when you're in the gym, your sympathetic nervous system is stimulated. And when you get out of the gym, you want to go back into rest and digest so you can recover. If you're constantly up, 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 your recovery is decreased. Oh, and then. Okay stimulants and you can't sleep now your REM sleeps off now your recovery is worse and the next day you go geez I'm really tired maybe I'll do a pre-workout before work I have people who do that and I'm like you can't do that so I had to make a little thing in my program saying they have to limit how much stimulants they use and this is the other aspect and this carried me a long way I think it might have been Conor McGregor trainer another one of the trainer UFC, fight, UFC fighter says he does not allow his fighters to use stimulants ever and they go, why? He goes, because it makes you mentally weak. He oh, goes, shit. He goes, if you're used to using a drug to reduce your perceived of exertion, you're relying on something to make you feel better than you actually are. What you should be learning is how to push through discomfort and fatigue to become mentally tougher. And then in a fight, if you want to use it, use it, but you train without it. I see. see? So, wh- so where does that put you... Where does that put you on the pre-workout formula spectrum? Like, are you, are you do you use, use pre-work? Them. You don't use them? You don't use any kind of stimulant, nothing? I drink my cup of coffee. I have a cup of coffee in the morning. I wake up and do emails. I have a cup of coffee with my wife and we eat breakfast and that's it. Um, how do you feel about nootropics? I don't know as much about them to comment. I'm, I, 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 if I don't know something, I don't want to say anything about it. I don't really know. I can't really say anything negative or positive or, or whatnot. So I guess I, I have a little – I guess I disagree with the UFC fighter coach in one way. The caffeine situation to me is I don't think it makes you weak to use caffeine. The problem with caffeine for me is it has so many negative effect, negative effects on the body when taken in high amounts. Correct. 
Right. That's, that's my yeah, problem. About dosing too. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like when you're 200 milligrams, you're not that bad. But when you're 400 milligrams, now you're talking about high blood pressure. You're talking about affecting your kidneys. You're talking about like a number of different things and affecting your sleep and all that. So that's more my problem because that's why I feel like the nootropics are a good option because they don't raise blood pressure. They don't raise heart rate, but they do kind of give you that mental clarity, mental focus. Right. Like tea cream. You ever heard of tea cream? Yep. I think that is one that's pretty mild central nervous system stimulatory effect, but still gives you a better drive and energy. But let me tell you this, right? Have you ever had a bad leg day outside of prep where you left the gym and you like outside of say strength lifts or PRs where you actually felt that was a bad workout? Um, yeah. I mean, of course, in 20 years I've had those. I see. This is why I look at it. And a lot of times when people go to the gym, I feel like a lot of people, not everybody want to feel that instantaneous pumped up as they walk into the gym. When I always know after 10 minutes of warm-up cardio, after two sets, I feel great. In the middle yeah. of workout, better. So when I do legs, I feel like sometimes legs is so demanding. Even if I walk in exhausted, after like that first crazy set, I'm like, ooh, I feel much better now. Yeah. It's got to get to that point. You know yeah. what I mean? So well, that's what I always rely on in my head. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I recently... Uh, I've been put on a, a protocol to lower my blood pressure a little bit. It was a little higher than I'd like. And uh, the person put me on a zero caffeine program. And it was like a huge blow to me because I'm used to doing a coffee in the morning, then a pre-workout before my training. And I'm just used to a lot of caffeine all the time, which I know is not bad, but I do it. I just do it anyway. I don't know why. I just got, you know, you get in that habit. Yeah. And uh, the first couple days, I was like, man, this is kind of hard to get like going. But it's been a couple weeks now, and I feel better than I've felt in a long time. Yeah. And my stomach, actually, my waist feels tighter. Like my body feels like it's functioning better. There's just so many things. My sleep has been better. So I just didn't realize how much of an effect it was having on me. And this is one aspect, and like I'll cap it off on this last thing I'm going to say is, you know, when your sympathetic stimulants stimulate your sympathetic nervous system, when that's stimulated, it directly affects digestion. Just like people with IBS, it's called the nervous person's disease. Mm -hmm. Anxious. I'm like, you're never going to meet a very calm, laid back person who has IBS, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and like, just to cap it off, so like to summarize to people how I really feel about stimulants is I think they have their use. Do they, are they great at decreasing rate of perceived exertion? Yes. Can they be useful? Yes. Can they be used and still build muscle? Yes. Um, can, uh, you know, but the problem is when people start to become dependent on them and then they get tired and they use more and more and more and more, that is where it becomes, you know, the double-edged sword, the detrimental. I feel like there's a therapeutic range that people can benefit yeah. and that's it. But like, I know a lot of people who are like, oh, it's two five scoops. Or I do a monster energy at noon, and then I do a Red Bull at three, and then I do pre-workout at night. I mean, now you're going too far. Yeah, and I think I think that's where I got. I think I got to the point where I just I was tired, and I was taking caffeine, and I was just I'm like, I need more caffeine. I need more caffeine, yeah. and I'm like, yeah. and it's just re wreaking havoc on my body. And I didn't even, yeah. yeah. So okay, um, so one of the things you said was you make sure they have three pieces of fruit in a day. What is an other thing that you want to make sure people have that you're training in their day in their off season. 
vegetables. Um, you know, I usually will give them vegetables that are more tolerated, less gas forming. So I usually just tell people they shouldn't eat broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, even mm-hmm. though they're for, for you. Um, I just, there's, you know, they're, they're gas forming, they're cruciferous. So if you're eating, the thing about this too, bodybuilders, what do they do? They go to like their discounts, discount bulk store and they buy a 10 pound bag of broccoli. And then they eat broccoli five times a day, every day. That was me. Right. <laughs> we all do that because it's convenient yeah. fast. So yeah. I usually have them do wilted fresh spinach, carrots, grape tomatoes, zucchini, uh, uh, romaine lettuce. And you know, if they're not into vegetables and they hate vegetables, I just tell them, dude, just take a handful of spinach and wilt it down into a little bit of, in a little bit of coconut oil, add a little salt and then add it to two meals a day if they hate veggies. And then, and if they like veggies, then I give them a limit because some people go crazy and then they're constipated and gassy. Okay. Okay. So veggies, fruit, how many servings of veggies you say? If they hate veggies, I try to get them to compromise on at least two servings a day. Okay. If they like veggies, I tell them, you know, if they're doing six meals a day, at least three or four, because obviously in the off season, you're trying to eat a lot of food and you're eating a lot of veggies, your fiber intake is going to be relatively high and that can be affect appetite and your digestion and bloating. So explain that to people because I know a lot of people, you know, especially with some of the more uh, recent trends are all about fiber. Oh, you need fiber. Fiber is healthy. Fiber keeps your cholesterol down. Fiber this, fiber that. Not a lot of people realize that too much fiber can be as detrimental as. Oh yeah. Can you explain kind of how that works and why it's a bad thing to have too much? Too much of anything's bad. Um, and like, you know, just like in a bodybuilder's diet, like, you know, we're not consuming 2000 calories a day. So we're going to be exceeding the recommended allowance of, you know, 25 to 300 grams of fiber per day. Um, so, you know, you're eating four or 5,000 calories and you're trying to get in four to 800 carbohydrates a day. Inevitably your fiber intake is going to start creeping up there. And if you're doing veggies and fruit and potatoes, you could easily hit 75, 100, 150 grams of fiber a day. What's and that's a, gonna, sorry to interrupt you. What's a, what's a good amount of fiber per day that's like healthy and it's not going to affect you stomach-wise? I personally like to say 15 grams of fiber per 1,000 calories. Okay. So if I'm doing 5,000 calories, we're talking uh, 75 grams. Right. And then if that becomes a problem, like if you're a man, my, I'm having like – bowel issues, then we'll be like, oh, maybe we need to scale the fiber back a little bit. Okay. Um, or sometimes you need to change the type of fiber because fiber in veggies is not as tolerated as in fiber and fruit. Like you could eat 25 grams of fiber and fruit and be pooping like a champ. And then you eat the same amount of fiber and like broccoli and like you're bound up. You know what I mean? Okay. Things that are a little different. So, okay. So I think we maybe skipped over it. What is the What's the worst reason why not to have too much fiber? Because the reason I've, I've always been told is if you have too much fiber, it's, it's slowing down your digestion. Oh, like yeah. let's, let's say I have a ton of fiber in one meal. It's going to slow down my digestion. I'm not going to be able to get in the next meal. Yep. So is that one of the main reasons? Yeah. Well, there's many reasons. One, that draws a lot of fluid into the intestinal tract. Um, so you can feel a lot of stomach distension. One, okay. um, fiber, too much fiber can give you gas. Too much fiber can also prevent absorption of medications, drugs, and other nutrients. Okay. So you ever sometimes read labels of certain drugs, it will say, make sure you do not take near a fiber supplement okay. or make 
fiber. You don't take near a high fiber food because the high fiber will just take everything along with it mm-hmm. and absorption of some things. That's how it kind of blocks cholesterol. It takes it along with it. Um, so there's that, you know, there's like catch 22 and then the same spectrum of not having enough fibers. Now you're having too much contact of carcinogens and contaminants in the intestinal tract and touching your wall. So you increase your risk of cancer and then you get, and then you can get constipated, bound up. And obviously the cholesterol benefits, I mean, the cholesterol lowering benefits. Is there, so we got the fruits, vegetables. Is there something else uh, on the micronutrient side or, or that you would recommend in somebody's daily diet? And if we're talking about bodybuilders, like I really say is you try to get the most nutrient dense foods that has the least amount of volume. So like there's certain obviously vegetables that don't have a lot of micronutrients, but have a lot of volume. So I say, you know, stick with spinach because like I said, you could take a large spinach and wilt it to nothing. Yeah. A few baby carrots, you could take a few tomatoes and you can have a little good spectrum of micronutrient dense foods in a, such a small amount. Now, wait a minute. When you wilt down, uh, I saw the way you, you wilt down your spinach. For those of you who don't know, uh, just type in Chris Tuttle on YouTube and you'll get uh, like his day in the life videos and that. And you can see kind of how he cooks his food there. But I noticed that you wilt down the, the spinach in the frying pan. Does that, don't you lose any of the nutrients when you're doing that or no? No, that's when you boil it. When you boil it, you yeah. can lose. B vitamins, um, B vitamins, when you cook them can destroy them like diamond, but at high, high heat, but actually your body absorbs and digests spinach better when it's cooked versus cooked. So as long as they're not boiling, it's steaming, it's steaming. Okay. Yeah. Steaming's fine. And the other aspect is this cooking the crap out of it, you know, they're like roasting in high heat for like 25 minutes. You're going to destroy a lot, but if you're just, you know, low, medium heat, wilt it down, pull it right off. Okay. Um, now on the macronutrient side, I personally noticed in my own diets that high fat works better for me in the off season. Like I gain more muscle. hundred percent. Okay. Because of the, the common, it's weird. Like the fat trend got really popular and now I notice a lot more bodybuilders are going back to protein and carbs only. And I've always noticed that I don't get the same pumps and I don't get the same growth in the off season unless I have a lot of healthy fats. And you feel like shit if you're on a low-fat diet. So what, what are you – is that kind of the way you coach your clients? Are they on higher-fat diets? I don't have any one philosophy with my clients. I really don't. But again, I have to – you know how it is. You got to work sometimes with somebody with what they're going to do and what they like. Okay, it, let's, let's broaden it then for people listening. Is, do you agree with having a good amount of fats in your off-season for growth? Yes, 100%. Anywhere from 10 to 20 grams of added fat. Okay, so any 10 to 20 of added fat. So if you're, having, if you're having a steak and potato, are you still adding fat or is that enough fat because of steak? Enough because of steak, and most likely. I mean, if it's a, uh, if it's a situation where you know, they're preferring to buy 96% lean ground beef, then I might need to add a teaspoon of oil. Um, but I might add it so the meal is anywhere from 15 to 25 grams of fat total. And I might need to supplement it for I have, but I'm not adding, obviously. You know. so, what, so I think a, an easier way for people to understand it might be if we say, you said 15 to 25 grams of fat per meal. Correct. So if, you, if the steak you're having has 25 grams of fat in it, don't add anything to it. Correct. Okay. So on the carb end, because what I do when I do higher fats is I always reduce my carbs a little bit. Yep. 
are you still doing high carbs with your high fats or, or, um, I guess you could say on average, I'll see what they're doing, but generally I might start them on maybe 45 grams of carbs per meal. Okay. See how they tolerate it. And then, um, as they start to go about, they're like, man, like I really like carbs. I might add a little more. If they say to me, these carbs are hard to get down. I might add more calories and fats instead, but carbs might go from 40, 30 per meal to 90 per meal. Um, for certain people, I have two guys who are really big, I mean, not big to your standard, but like big for my clientele. And he's eating, he was eating 120 grams of carbs per meal with 20 grams of fat added per meal. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's individual case. I think I'm adding, see, I went to a place where I'm adding more fat and less carbs. Like, um, this is what happened. I was doing a lot of carbs and not a lot of fat. And I noticed my stomach distension was worse. Yeah. Like I, I was doing like between 100 to 150 grams per meal. Yeah. And when I reduce, I work with John uh, Meadows and John's like, let's reduce your carbs, but double your fats. So my fats are probably around 40 grams per meal almost. Yeah. But my stomach feels way better. Way better. Like my pumps are still great. Like I don't need, I don't feel like I need any more carbs, but I just overall feel better and my stomach feels better. Yeah. And the, all the anti inflammatory effects of them. Like when I have people uh, try to make their life insurance plan by lowering their lipids and their triglycerides and I'll cut their carbs to like 15 per meal and it'll just be fruit and then I'll jack their monounsaturated fats up of avocado, olive oil, mac oil, almonds and their lipid profile changes within like seven days. <clears throat> okay. So I'm not on the wrong track then. Not that John no. would, not, not that John would steer me wrong, but. Carbs are so inflammatory. They are inflammatory. You ever notice this? You ever notice sometimes in prep, like your aches and pains kind of go away? Yeah. Yeah. And then three weeks post-show, you're like, you're just an inflammatory mess. Yeah. Oh, oh my, oh my God. All my tendonitis came right back. <laughs> like reaching havoc on everything. Yeah. So, okay. One of the interesting things I, I heard in your videos was that you only used to do four ounces of protein per meal. Yeah. Now, I'm not going to disagree with you about it, but I do want to ask you, do you think had you tried to go into like the upper weight classes or like the, the open class of bodybuilding, do you think you would go into the eight ounces, 10 ounce portion of protein, or do you just don't think the body needs it? Well, I'll give you a recap. So like, I've always had the understanding from school kind of tainted my view, just like just bodybuilders and whoever, like when you have a preconceived notion of this, you're supposed to do, it's hard to break that. So, you know, given the protein requirements I learned in school, I'm like, and then the protein requirements bodybuilders are eating. I'm like, there's just no way I need this. So I kind of compromised. So instead of eating three ounces per meal, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do four, four and a half. And I did it. And every year I was jumping 10, 12 pounds of stage weight. So I'm like, well, if it's working, I'm just going to keep it. And then eventually I did go higher. I went up to eight ounces per meal. It did nothing but make me feel like shit and slow my digestion. And I was spending too much money. Okay. Uh, then I ended up lowering it down to six ounces per meal. And for me, that was kind of like the happy medium. I'm not going to mention the coach, but at one point in my career, I was eating 12 ounces cooked Oof. per meal. That's a lot of money. <laughs> so it was, was a lot of money. Um, okay. So for those listening, what do you think? Let's put it more in, uh, in a gram per pound situation. What do you think? How much, like a one gram per pound of body weight? Or what are we talking about with the protein requirement? Gram if and a half? somebody... 
I think if somebody, if we could say, we'll just call this, if somebody's of reasonable body fat level, because obviously not obese, I think it's reasonable to say to a gram, gram and a half is a reasonable amount of protein per body weight if they're not fat. Okay, now that per body weight or per body, per lean body mass? Uh, per body weight. So like if okay. you have a 200 pound bodybuilder and he's pretty lean, anywhere from like eight to say 15%, I could say comfortable, I could understand doing one gram per pound or pound or a gram and a half. I know in our field, nutrition field, it's much different. 1.5 to 2.2 per kilogram of body weight, yeah. which is less than that. Yeah. Uh, but um, that, that's fine. I think people doing 500 grams and they're a middleweight, I just think is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and I hear things all the time. They're one of the reasons why I said that in the video is my client goes, all these guys at the gym are telling me it's impossible for anybody to gain muscle on anything less than five ounces of protein. I'm like, that's the dumbest black and white thing I think I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. You can't say that. You know no, what I mean? You, you get a chick who's five feet and you just going to eat five ounces of protein. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So what do you think about, I want to know what you think about stomach distension from a health standpoint. How do you, how does somebody with a distended stomach or is having stomach distension issues, how do you solve that with your clients? I think it's a multifaceted issue. One, it's a postural thing when someone has anterior tilt of their pelvis, a very, very, very tightened psoas, very weak core musculature. Um, I think that becomes a huge problematic issue that causes something to be distended and lean forward. Kind of like when you see, you know, when you see like a young kid on the beach, real young, like talk about three and there's their belly sticking out and it's distended. Yeah. yeah. Back's arched, you know, very similar to like a bodybuilder. Yeah. Very core, it's sticking forward. And of course, the quantity of food you have to eat. You're eating so much food, it's like it's kind of like after Thanksgiving meal. It's like you're going to walk around holding your stomach in. Your stomach just wants to stick out. Yeah, yeah. And so much food. But I think bodybuilders in general don't know how to train their core, as in core stability, not train abs, core yeah. stability. Yeah. I mean, how many powerlifters do you see now deadlifting 800 plus pounds and their waist is tiny? Yeah. Yeah. So it's not deadlifting and squatting. It's yeah. the you know, food and the obviously powerlifters are all about core strength, not ab stuff. People can, can confuse when I go, hey, you train core. Like, yeah, I do sit-ups. My gut doesn't train your core. So wait a minute. When you're saying core, you're talking about like a TV. It's your TVA, your transverse abdominus. Is that what yeah, you're talking about? Not just your transverse abdominus. Like everything. Like everything involved in a plank, an ab roller. So like training your core is basically training – your spine to stay in neutral position with external resistance, like a plank, like an ab roller, because the core musculature is designed to stabilize your spine under tension. Core musculature is not like, you know, you're not going to be doing sit-ups with 400 pounds. Yeah. All the core works the best when your spine's neutral. Yeah. A lot of bodybuilders cave, you know? Yeah. Do you think, you know, we hear this all the time. Do you think it's GH and insulin? No, no, I don't think so. Because I know some people who use a god awful amount of growth in insulin and their waist is tiny. Because <laughs> you would see it happen to almost everybody. But this is the thing, right? So if someone's taking a bunch of growth in insulin, you got to feed that insulin. That's the problem, I think. Because you're ingesting a ton of food. Yeah. So people well, it's, like not even, it's not even just food. It's you're ingesting a ton of sugar. It's even, it's, it's even worse. Worse. Yeah. I think uh, there was there was one off season where I, I personally hate insulin, okay? Like I don't 
I don't like it. it. I don't feel good on it. None of that. But there was 100%. one year. But there was one year where I had a coach that recommended I try it. And I did it. And every time I did it, I had to ingest like 100 grams of sugar. And I'm like, every time I did it, I felt horrible. Horrible. And I, I think that was the year my stomach grew the most, but it wasn't from the insulin. It was because every time I had to have that sugar meal, I was so fucking bloated. So, but I just haven't, you know, people message me all the time and they're like, you know, do you think I should add insulin? Do you think I'm like, you don't, you just don't need it. You just don't need it. No, I agree. I can't believe I hear the protocols of people doing like 50 units of Humalog pre-workout with 150 carbs. I'm like, you don't feel like death. I I'm like, I'm like, what the hell? It's crazy. But it's not even, it's not even, you know, if you feel like death, but you're making the progress, that's one thing you're like, okay, well, I'm going to sacrifice my health. Not that that's a good thing, but you know, some people think, okay, I'm going to sacrifice my health to get huge. I don't really notice the benefits from it. I just feel like I get fatter. And then once I get off, I lose a lot of water weight and I'm, it's just, I don't really feel like I get bigger from it. Right. And this is the other thing, right? So, you know, in Olympic athletes, you know, when they cyclists who are cranking 70, what is 70, uh, 80 to 90% intensity for a full 60 minutes, not absorb any more than a gram of carb per minute when it was just sugar. If they combine fructose, they can absorb more because it's a different pathway of absorption. But like, so a bodybuilder is not burning 60 grams of sugar in an hour of training arms. Yeah. Like you, you are just feeding the insulin and jamming into fat cells, saturating things. And you're basically just making sure you cover everything. I don't think 150 grams of carbs training arms is, I think it's ridiculous. Okay. Let's, let's delete, let's delete the insulin from the equation. How do you feel about, uh, pre intra post carbs. I've read some research with it with like weight training, like a legitimate research. And like it does show to increase protein synthesis, delay fatigue, delay muscle, uh, uh, mental fatigue from exhaustion and things like that. Is it going to equate to an increased lean body mass over 12 weeks, provided that you have enough adequate nutrition? I don't see that happening. Mm-hmm. If you're prep and like man like i gotta make sure i ration and time my carbohydrates around training to give me fuel i could understand rational behind that but if you're ingesting an adequate amount of calories per day adding extra intra is really not going to be that beneficial because as you know it's like if you have a cheat meal last night today's workout's gonna be pretty good right yeah yeah yeah. like i'm gonna take this i'm like oh my god i feel humongous difference yeah especially in the fed state so i agree with it I agree with you hundred percent on everything you said. There's only one aspect that you didn't mention was if I'm taking in pre and intra nutrition, like let's say with a pre-workout or an intra workout that has like different pump ingredients in it, would the carbs pre or intra help shuttle those nutrients faster? Well, that's a good question. Would it shuttle it faster? I don't know. I mean, think about it. If the pre-workout meal or actually probably not the pre-workout meal, but the meal before that, depending what it was, is already circulating through your system in your blood. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, you know, say if you ate a solid rice and chicken two hours before training, it's not like that is going to be in your bloodstream. Used no, no, while training, no right? that's, that's not what I mean. Let's say you took a pre-workout that was loaded in citrulline. Okay, yeah. Right? 
and you want things to work better or um, you want the glycogen that you're using during your workout also to be restored, wouldn't a little bit of carbs intra-workout help that or is that just you're kind of wasting your time? I don't think it's going to help restore glycogen. I think it's more or less going to prevent glycogen depletion because your body has a, a source right away. Um, okay. It's but that's, yeah. But that's kind of the same thing, no? I mean, yeah, yeah, get it, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, in theory, I, I still, I still like the idea of going to the gym, drinking water, and depleting, and then feeding. It's kind of like now your body's empty, insensitivity is super high. Now your body goes dry, sponge, and soak it up instead of like kind of another by giving yourself an IV of food all day long. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you're try. So you don't, you don't. Ascribe, prescribe or ascribe to the pre-workout intra-workout products at all like none of them oh some some for some people i do okay. um, some people i don't personally i usually ask them oh you've been using this do you like it do you feel like it has benefited from you and they go well since i started i noticed i get more pumps and i feel less sore whether that's true or not i'm gonna keep it the placebo effect matters right 100 percent. yeah how do you feel about I want to know how you feel about ice because ice has been on the, on my brain lately because I've talked to other people um, that say ice is just in your head and it doesn't actually do anything, but it's actually one icing your body parts. Yeah. Like icing after like, say your knees are sore or whatever, like using ice to reduce inflammation and things like that. Um, I mean, I use ice on my knees and I noticed a huge difference. Um, massive difference actually. Uh, but I do understand what you're talking about because I know in Chinese medicine, they don't use ice at all. Yeah. With Chinese medicine. Um, and some people believe that it's not, but like, I do believe ice baths help hinder pain because I, 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 I could be way off on this. I do believe that extreme cold damper some sort of inflammatory effect in the body or releases, releases endorphins to help prevent pain. So I don't know if it's actually helping you heal or just making you, feel better that's the that's that was the debate we were having is yeah he was saying that it will make you feel better but it's not actually reducing inflammation yeah but i I could totally see that but i don't know if that's true because i remember doing i used to do ice baths every week religiously after my leg days and i specifically remember all those were the best feeling like i'm not talking the day of i mean even the day after or the next time i went to train things just felt better yeah. So yeah. I always feel like it's a it's a positive thing to be doing. You know what I mean? I ice my knees on and off thirty minutes for like three or four hours after I train legs every week, mm-hmm. and notice the next day when I get out of bed, I'm not like ooh. <laughs> yeah. It actually feels like it feels much less stiff. Yeah, yeah. So going back to the uh, insulin thing or the drug aspect, what do you think? I noticed that the North Americans, not everybody was in the best condition. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's the lighting or, or what it is. You were, you were there so you could see obviously. So I don't know. I feel like are guys using too much drugs and it's affecting their look. And I'm not trying to say they're lazy. I'm saying sometimes I think when you use too much drugs, you have a different look. You just don't get that really crisp look. Um, there, I have to say, you know, being in the crowd and seeing the pictures, like a couple people are like, Oh, 
no, so-and-so was off. I'm like, no, they definitely weren't. You weren't there. Oh, okay. Show. But I mean, in consensus, I know what you're saying that, you know, in past shows, I've seen much gnarlier condition. I know what you're talking about, but I do believe people's use of drugs, PDs today is just the standard, the normal standards become so high that that's what people think that you need to do. Yeah. Normal standard of high uh, the normal standard is like high what it was 10 years ago. You know what I mean? It keeps like going up and up and up and up. What do you think normal is? Like, let's, let's take like test, for example, what's a normal range for either a top amateur or any pros that you might, well, let's not talk about anybody, you know, but what do you think is a normal range for guys on an upper level? Normal range of what they're doing or what they should be doing. Oh, both actually. That's interesting that you put it that way. Well, it's funny. I know more pros that take, I know more amateurs that take much more than pros do. Yeah. Um, so anywhere from 750 to 1250 tests per week. Um, I would think that it was kind of like a, a range that some people, most people fall under. Yeah. Um, I know people at my local gym who are taking two grams of tests per week and they compete as a middleweight, you know, it's, uh, and they look at me and they go, you must be on a lot of crap. <laughs> Oh Jesus! <laughs> um, what do you think about SARMs? Because SARMs are like the new thing, and people are stacking them with their steroids, and people are doing them as bridging mechanisms. And I, uh, I don't see it. I don't see it either. And like Evan says, and Evan says to me, he goes, "Why is everybody who's always an advocate of SARMs never big?" <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. he goes, "I don't." He goes, "I don't see them jumping weight classes every year." <laughs> but I don't. I, I don't, I'm not into them. I, when clients come to me on them and they go, what do you guys do with them? I'm like, do what you want, dude. Like, I don't know anything about them, nor do I like them. I don't condone them. And in the States, like from, uh, it's like 80% are garbage anyway. Yeah. Yeah. What about, um, peptides? How do you feel about peptides? Are we including growth in that? No. Cause growth is actually like, if you get real growth, it actually does something. Right. Okay. So, um, I'm not an advocate of peptides either. I just think the uh, quality consistency of them being produced in the States varies so greatly that it's not necessarily something that people should be jumping into. Not to mention there's not a ton of research. I do know a lot of people who've used them and they go, Oh, my joint pain's better. My tendons are healing. Great. I've tried a couple of them. It didn't do anything to me. So I'm going to sit there and just poke myself with some random crap. That's not necessarily going to work. Yeah. Uh, I had the same experience. I've tried when I, I tore my tricep, people kept on saying, get the TB 500 and the, <laughs> yeah. the BPC, this and that. And I'm like, okay, I tried them before when I had a hamstring tear and I'm like, I didn't, I don't notice any less pain or any less, any, any faster healing. I, don't, I just don't get it. So it's not, not something I use. And this is why I tell people, which I don't get. If those things really worked, Drug companies are greedy as fuck. Yeah. If that worked, they would market that and they would sell it for like $500 a shot. Yeah. It would be everywhere. Athletes would yeah. be using it. It would be like mainstream. Yeah. Let me tell you, the FDA finds something that works, they're going to make money. They're going to steal that and patent and start arresting people for selling it. Yeah, but, yeah. Well, the other thing I tell people is it wouldn't be so cheap. Like no. people are like, oh, I can get, I can get IGF from this company for like a hundred bucks. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh god. Um, all right. All right. Let's move on. Let's move on to something else. I, you said that I wanted to touch on and I won't keep you too much longer, but you said in your video, something about growing 
Somebody asked you about growing, uh, building muscle and losing fat at the same time. Ugh. Wait, a, just <laughs> let me finish the, for, let me finish setting this up because I've told people that they can do that. Okay. But I know technically you're right. Like, and the reason it's I substantial. say, okay, wait a minute. The reason I say I feel people they can do that is only because I've said this thing before where I believe in growing into your weight. Like in the off season, I'll start eating like 5,500 calories, right? Let's say when I was younger and I'll get up to like 290 and I'll hold that 290 for the rest of my off season. And as the off season goes on, I will get leaner but still at 290. So I call it growing into your weight. Are you in a caloric deficit at that time? No, because 5,500 calories is definitely over my caloric. It's- well, that's the difference. So like, like what I'm saying is somebody comes to me and they're, you know, say they're eating, you know, whatever, 6,000 calories a day. And they're like, man, I want to get a six pack by the end of the summer, but I want to put on 10 pounds of muscle. I'm like, that's not going to happen. <laughs> you know, like, could you marginally get leaner and grow into your weight? I 100% agree that that's possible. But for the vast majority of people who want to get lean, they're looking to get lean at a great rate. So getting lean at a decent rate of like seeing, you know, monumental changes in the seven-day period, not monumental, but like visual difference in the seven-day period of leanness every seven days, seven days, and then trying to put on five to eight pounds of muscle is just not realistic for okay. most people. Time out. Let me, let me rephrase it because the questions I get are not from unrealistic people. They're from people who are like, let's say this is a question I'll get. Uh, I used to weigh 300 pounds. I've cut down to 200, but I still feel like I have fat on my body. Should I keep cutting or can I still start putting on muscle and still get leaner while I'm putting on muscle? Okay. And that's, I would say that's possible. Okay. So how do you, what do you tell that person? What are they going to do? Okay. So I go, listen, given the fact that you've already lost hundred pounds of body fat means you've been a caloric deficit for a long period of time. So your body's already insulin sensitive. It's going to be a dry sponge. And now you're going to be adding a little more food back and you're going to be training conducive to muscle hypertrophy. So you're going to have a boost in metabolic rate. You're going to be focusing on lean muscle and a controlled diet. So he's going to see an increase in lean mass and most likely a good, decent amount of drop in body fat. Um, the, the, the problem is, you know, what it is, man. It's like, Sometimes in a, it's a, that's a circumstance. Yeah. You know, somebody who like who can't bust past their plateau no matter what they do, and it's like cutting back their calories and then giving them harder weight training is not necessarily going to be putting a uh, a rewarding amount of muscle on and a rewarding amount of fat loss. Yeah. Yeah. Tell people it is possible, but it's circumstantial. I've seen some of my clients. I tell them like, listen. You're burning the wick at both ends. You need a kind of a caloric surplus to gain muscle. You need somewhat of a caloric deficit to burn fat. So you got to choose one or the other. And this guy goes, man, our, we'll do body fat first and then reverse. I'm like, that's fine. And then I look at his pictures over 12-week period. He's a natural guy, and he wasn't really trained properly. And he only lost five pounds, but visually changed drastically. Yeah. Clearly in his situation, genetics, training, nutrition, yeah. he did that. Yeah. So what do you think is happening when I grow into my 290? I think when you grow into your 290, you're still eating a sufficient amount of calories. You're getting an increased boost in metabolism. But, it's how, not did like, I, but how did I get leaner? But it, you're burning more fat and you're getting increasing lean mass. Now, if you just kept adding calories to try to gain more and more weight, 
you're going to negate that fat burning effect. So as long as I stay at that calorie count that I have set, I'm going to grow into it. it obviously, you know what you're doing with recovery and training. So, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask you, if you're not a beginner, taking all beginners aside, can you gain muscle mass in a caloric deficit? And I don't mean the freak, freak here and there that can do it. I mean, in general, can you gain muscle mass in a, in a caloric deficit? With drugs? Yeah. Yes. You can. Yeah, yeah. Because I've always told people they can't. No, I mean, think about it. Again, circumstantial. You're on cycle, you're off cycle. You, you're going from test EQ to like, more harder compounds, trestolone, you know, uh, adding D ball and test like in, in your slight, uh, well, are we talking about like a 750 calorie caloric deficit? Or let's, talk- say, let's say I'm dieting for a show and I'm at my calories for the day at 3,500, but I'm eating 32. Can I still put on muscle? I think if you balance recovery, right, I think it's possible. Now possible in the sense of like, you're staying the same weight and you're getting grainier, harder, leaner. Uh, one prep I did, I was 218 pounds, 13 weeks out. And I stepped on stage at 212. Okay. You know, and I was doing an hour and a half of cardio a day and I grew in the entire show, but that was circumstantial given where I was coming from. Meaning I wasn't using anything prior. Oh, so you had a, you like, a, like a rebound effect of some sort. Right. There's so many circumstances. So you can't, I can't answer that cut and dry. So when people say you can't gain muscle in a deficit, it's not totally true. So so I need to rephrase my answer to that question. (laughs) Well, I'm just saying like, I just had this debate with uh, Greg Doucette. Greg Doucette said that you can gain muscle in a deficit. And I said, you can't. And I, and I'm, I'm, I'm excluding beginners because I think beginners can because right. they've never done anything. So they're just going to grow no matter what. Right. But I'm excluding inter- beginners to intermediates and advanced lifters only. But I guess in those scenarios, I mean, you can't argue with facts, right? So it's possible. Right. It's definitely possible for the vast majority of people. You know, I would say vast majority. You can't put a percent on it. But like, I would say it's not going to happen to everybody by greater than 50%. Oh, this is something I wanted to ask you before we go, please. This is, I just want to, I know we've been on for a while, but. No, no worries, man. I wrote down a bunch of questions and I I think we covered most of them organically, but uh, this is one I missed that I just wanted to ask was, um, why do you do the same exercises for three weeks? I noticed in your video, you said something about, you had picked certain exercises for your back day and you did that workout only for three weeks and then you would rotate it. Three to five weeks. I'll stay with the same exercises. Most applying to multi-joint movements. The reason being is this, right? So say if I show you a new variation of a barbell row, right? And you do it and you're like, Oh, okay. And you put 315 on them. You're like, Oh, it feels good. Oh, it feels really good. I think I'm gonna do this again next week. And next week you're able to do 365. Because the neurons, you're learning a new pattern of motion. Yeah. Usually takes, you know, anywhere from two to five weeks to master that new pattern of motion. Mm-hmm. Where you're getting the maximum amount of muscle recruitment in that particular exercise. Okay. So if you're changing exercise all the time, 
provided it's not a complex motion. Like obviously a bicep curl is a damn bicep curl. It's like you don't have to like learn a new pattern of motion. Yeah. But a new variation of a row, a squat, maybe even a press. There's going to be a period of time where you're getting better at that motion. And people are like, oh, I'm getting stronger. It's like, no, your body's learning how to fire the muscles <laughs> in that time. And then you maximize it, get stuck, and then change, and then go back. Um, I actually got that from a famous powerlifter. And he was saying that, you know, when you're trying to maximize motor recruitment of a particular motion, he goes, you must stay with the same exercise in the same order for a period of time to max out your body's ability to fire those neurons before you change. So it's like going from a high bar squat to a low bar squat to a sumo squat like every other week. He goes, it's detrimental in that aspect because your body doesn't have enough time with that one motion. Okay, so why okay when you go back to that let's take barbell rows for example you did barbell rows you got a new variation of it you did it for three weeks or five weeks whatever the amount and you maxed out right and then you go do something else for three to five weeks when you come back to the barbell row aren't you starting back at the very beginning no because now i have data accumulated of weight that i was using i know that but now your neurons don't they have to re remember no they just know it's kind of like riding a bike yeah like, you know, say like for race, for example, like racing motocross, it's like, I went a year without riding at all and I could still get on a bike and still rip it. You know what I mean? Yeah. My body still remembers. I might be a little rusty, but it might come back really fast versus kind of like obtaining the skill takes a long time, but kind of knocking off the cobwebs doesn't take nearly as much time. So once you're, if you come back to the barbell row after that three to five week period, the first week week might be a little bit off, but you'll come back to your max strength fast is what you're saying. Faster. Or it might be dead on. Like uh, I switched my exercises most recently back to week one and I was at greater strength than the last week when I left. Okay. And when you switch, you're, when you set this up, you're doing the exact same chest workout for three weeks. You're not changing any of the rep schemes, any of the volume. Everything. No. The only way I'll change the volume is if I make an error. So, like, say if uh, – obviously, one thing that people um, – you realize this, that, like, strength's not the same every week. Yeah. Sometimes you're feeling really good, and sometimes your body's recovering slow, so you might need to make an adjustment on the fly. So, like, a couple of weeks back, I remember I was feeling stupid strong, and um, I looked at my logbook, and I used my logbook not to break numbers, but more or less to have a reference. Yeah. So I don't look at the reps I do. I leave it reps out on purpose so I know what weight to use. And then I look at the reps and I go, oh, no shit. I did better than I did last week. <laughs> I did a particular weight and it was actually extremely easy. Okay. Added an extra set because that weight was really easy. I and see. I no to that for the following week. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Okay, interesting. So you think that's a good protocol to keep people growing or getting stronger or both? It's been a great protocol for me for growth. Okay. I've been spinning my wheels for a long time doing this nonsense of just multiple, multiple sets to failure and drop sets. And my body just wasn't recovering. And I kept getting overuse injuries in my elbows over and over and over. Yeah. So I'm like, man, I, I, this is not working. Like how many times can you do the same thing and not get anywhere? So I'm like, maybe I should try a completely different approach. Maybe I should stop with an RIR of like maybe one to two reps or just train right to failure where your first rep looks identical to your last rep and then see how I feel the following week. And I did that 
And the next day, my chest was fuller, mildly sore, but not like flat and empty. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, I got you. The reps, you know? So I'm like, wow, this is good. So maybe next week I'll add one more set uh, on each exercise and see how I recover. And then I kind of find like a little threshold where I could leave the gym feeling super pumped. The next day, I would feel mildly sore if no soreness. My energy was good. Appetite was good. And I was getting insane pumps even just after a warm-up set. Yeah. So recovery is really good right now. Yeah. And before, I used to always be like hit or miss. One day is recovery is bad. The next day, I feel flat. The next day, I'm tired. The next day, I'm achy. I'm like, I didn't feel like this when I was 20, you know? Yeah. Now that I'm a little older, like, I got to pay attention a little closer to this. Yeah. I'm not – I don't really know where the line is. That's my problem. I don't, like – I always want to do what you're saying. I always want to pull back a bit because I always look better when I pull back, but I have trouble knowing where the line is. So when I'm, when I'm actually in the gym, I'm like, do I stop now? Do I stop now? If I stop now, am I being lazy? It's the hardest thing in the world, dude. I, I have to tell you because I, I, the same way I look at the clock and I'm like, man, I'm going to be out of here in 75 minutes. And sometimes I'm like, I find myself wanting, I always want to do more. I want to do more and more and more. I love training. I love it to death. Yeah. But I'm I, I keep thinking to myself, I'm like, if I keep doing with the same, if I keep doing what I was doing, I'm going to get the same fucking result. Yeah. I just have to hang back and take note. And then I'll take note. Like the next day in my book, I wrote a note being like, didn't feel soreness at all. Didn't feel tight. And I'm like, okay, maybe I can go a little harder and then go that way. And then one week I changed gyms, different equipment, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. stupid sore, <laughs> <laughs> like so sore and flat. And I'm like, Hired and exhausted, and I'm like, yeah. oh, that's that's that did too much, you know. Yeah. How long have you kept the long book log book for? Like since the beginning? No, it's uh, this is new. Uh, last five months, maybe about five months. I've never used one. Do you think it's a good idea? Do you like it? I like it doing it the way I do it. So listen, this is what I'll do. I'll write it down in the gym, right? Yeah. And I'll go home and I'll put it into a spreadsheet. Yeah. And then before I leave, I'll copy the spreadsheet and I'll paste it into an email on my phone, but I'll exclude the reps I did, just the weights. So I can't see reps. Why are you doing all of that? Why are you putting it in a spreadsheet? And why, like, why are you doing oh, all that? My handwriting is horrible. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I can't right. see anything. Are you, are you going to publish that for people like as a program they can buy or no? No, I, I help people with their training program. I just modify what they're doing or, I don't, I'm not really into the training thing. Like personally, if I feel that I'm not super qualified to help people, I don't, that's not my thing. Nutrition's my thing. Um, I do help people with training and angles and making sure they're not training like a weightlifter, just like, you know, pushing the, like, you know, pushing the weight and actually not like, you know, pushing the muscle, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, because you know, a lot of people sitting there like my chest doesn't grow. And you look at the bench, you're like, well, that's why. Yeah. You know? Um, <laughs> Before we go, I want to get just a couple quick hitters. Why do you not like women wearing tight pants? <laughs> <laughs> Lexi, I no, I like I never said that. But like <laughs> she likes to do that to get a rise out of me. Like if she comes downstairs and I don't comment on her pants, she'll go back upstairs and change the pants. <laughs> so if, she, if I if she comes downstairs and I go, You're wearing that to the gym? She goes, Yeah. And then she will wear it. But if she comes downstairs and I, and am I right? Yes. And if she goes, <laughs> and, and I don't say anything, she, she, I'm like, where are you? She's like, I'm changing. I'm like, what's wrong with you hat on? Okay, well, he's Hi, here. how are you? 
Hi. He sees me day in and day out. I have to keep it interesting, right? I see. Other 24-7. So you're trying to like specifically troll troll him a little bit. Oh, yeah. Every Always. Every <laughs> we push each other's buttons, make fun of each other. You know what it is, man? If you work with her all day long, we have to like be able to bust each other's chops like buddies. You know what I mean? Yeah. So she's always razzing me wearing sketchy shit. I'm always like, what are you doing? Why You're welcome. Why? Like I can see your vagina on that thing. <laughs> Dude. But you, don't get, but you don't get upset. You're cool with it. No, like, I'm just cool with that. Like, I'm not like, you better change your shit. I'm not like that. But I'm like, I can't believe you're wearing something like that. It helps your training. No, it does not. <laughs> You know what? Yeah. I like I like that. I like the attitude that you have because you guys are able to keep things fun. Was it always like that? Yeah, we've always been. Yeah, she's got dude, for a personality for a chick. She's very easygoing. Yeah, like more easygoing than I'm used to. Like when certain things would happen, and I'd be like, <gasps> like expecting that reaction, and then she's like, nah, it's totally cool. I'm like, what? <laughs> are you sure? So the, this is a great story, right? Yeah. We had our bathroom redone, and this little box apartment we lived. And there was no bathroom for 24 hours. Yeah. Four days. So four, four days. So the contractor comes in and sees her walk in and he looks at me and he goes, dude, do you have a female living here? And I go, yeah. He goes, there's no toilet. How's that going? I'm like, she hasn't said anything. He goes, where's she going to the bathroom? And I go, question. And I go, Lex, where are you going to the bathroom? She's like, oh, I wake up in the night, go outside and pee. And I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> And he looks at me and he goes, dude, you got to marry that girl. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. And she walks in. I'm like, where have you been going? She goes, oh, just outside. And I'm like, like, no big deal. Middle of the night, midnight, just pop a squat, pee outside. She's like, yeah. I'm like, sweet. <laughs> How old is your wife? 28. Good job. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> she just turned. I'm bad at or, dates. Or eight years either. difference. Eight yeah. years difference. And when you got a dog, how many dogs do you have? Five. Too many? No, Five too many. dogs? Yeah, that that's Stuart. We have four little ones, and we have a 16-year-old black lab. How is that around the house? It's fun. <laughs> yeah, you have a 16-year-old black lab? Yeah. yeah. He's old man river. Well, that's what we – we have a 14-year-old chocolate lab. That's crazy. 14 or 15, he's got bad hips and everything. We try – we like – We have that harness on him. Yeah, that's what we have. We kind of help him up and down the stairs. Yeah. And uh, we hand make – like we make him like people food, and we – she, yeah, my wife has to like hand feed him. So oh, hell, yeah, yeah. 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 I, uh, Foster is still into eating food, and, but we give him like CBD oil, MCT oil. Uh, uh, I give him people food, and we have this real food can stuff. It's like chicken, rice, and carrots, and oatmeal or something like that. Yeah, some medley of he needs real more food. calories. He needs more calories for sure. Yeah, that's cool. we change his food, man. He got better, like much better right away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fast. Yeah, bug food. Um, last question, because I noticed you put out a couple of rants on Instagram and I like the fact that you rant cause you seem really angry sometimes. <laughs> so, uh, what are your three biggest pet peeves? If you had any, and it doesn't have to be just bodybuilding. It could be anything. Okay. One is when people say they don't have time for something. It just means they don't value it enough to not make time for it. Don't say, if someone says to me, Hey man, you never hang out anymore. I'm not gonna say I don't have time. I'm like, bro, I really just don't want to hang out with you. Like, like I think just, and don't make excuses. I can't stand excuses. Um, I went to military school for a year and if we made an excuse, we have to do hundred pushups on the spot. Like if we made an excuse for anything, why did you guys not make it to the mess hall on time? 
and he's waiting for somebody to say, Jacob over there could put a shirt on hundred push-ups. Like, you know what I mean? Like uh, yeah. just do it. Just do it. I can't stand excuses. And I can't stand when people don't take ownership for their actions. If okay. you up, say you're sorry, take responsibility, take response in America. That's like lost. Yeah. And that's one thing that I just, I cannot stand, man. It's like, and to me, it's like part of being a man is like taking ownership. You're like, you know what, dude, I totally fucked up. And that's, that's my fault. Instead of just, no, man, well, you made me do this. You, nobody made you do anything, dude. Yeah, like, yeah. That drives me crazy. Yeah. That, man. I agree. Um, yeah. You just opened a whole other can of worms I want to ask you about now with like military school and all those other things. But it's been, I don't want to keep you on too long, man. It's been a little over an hour. So if you'll come on again, we could talk more about like your life growing up and all that. Because I just wanted to get a lot of the X's and O's because I knew you would have all the knowledge and I wanted people to hear it but I want to get into some of the lifestyle stuff another time. So if you can, in the future, we'll get you back on. Yeah, for sure, man. That's my, my upbringing. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a good story. That military school story. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll get into all of it uh, another time. I just, I don't want to make, like I said, I don't want to keep you on too long, but I appreciate no the worries. time, man. Thank you very much. And uh, I hope people get uh, a lot of benefit out of this. There's a lot of good information. Yeah, man. I really appreciate the invite. Dude. I thought it was really cool. Yeah. Thank you very much, man. We'll, uh, we'll do it again soon. I'll show you a message and we'll get it lined up. You got it. Okay, man. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Okay.